Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today's episode is a grab bag where we discuss an important topic in military justice. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding a criminal trial, and listener discretion is advised. The purpose of today's podcast is to discuss a military judge's perspective on various courtroom topics, such as etiquette, filings, and how to make the process run smoother and more efficiently. We're honored to be joined today by Colonel Robert Shuck, a military judge currently serving in the Fourth Judicial Circuit. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Today's virtual gateway sessions and audio roadmap or guidebook for practitioners on both sides of the aisle. And our goal here at the schoolhouse is to provide a quick hit point that will immediately improve performance and practice, as well as create judicial economy across the field. We'll cover any topics that you would normally cover in a gateway session. And sir, I open it up to you, whatever you would like to talk about first, and we will go from there. Sure. Uh, and, you know, quick disclaimer, I'm, this is just my perspective that I've, I've uh, developed over the past uh, almost six years on the bench. Um, and not, of course, not the Army's position or not the judiciary's position. And every judge has got different wants and needs, so to speak with regards to uh, improving of advocacy. And so one of the things that I think is uh, helpful, given that we're in a podcast environment, was first talking about technology in the courtroom. I have seen some incredible uh, use of software, uh, litigation-specific software tools that are out there in the courtroom. Uh, A quick plug for our Bridging the Gap team sites, which has got almost 360 i think over 360 members as of uh, as of uh, this morning so if you're not a member uh, you should jump on that because a lot of these topics i've already uh, myself or other judges have already commented about but certainly have seen some incredible litigation software tools in the courtroom uh, that have really helped out whether a defense attorney walking through a direct of their own client or a cross-examination utilizing other exhibits that have already been admitted. It's been, uh, there's really some interesting uh, software packages uh, that are available for practitioners for use in the courtroom. And as I like to tell everybody I can, whether it be uh, my senior leadership or the attorneys that practice in front of me, digital evidence is not going away. And so if you have, you, you're going to need to get familiar with and be able to manipulate uh, digital evidence so that you can make your presentation the best it can be. And if you're simply not comfortable or not capable of working with a digital, digital photograph, a digital recording, then find somebody within your office that is. Uh, but I encourage you to certainly uh there's many YouTube videos and there's many online classes that you can take uh, that can assist you in putting together something that could could drastically improve your utilization of technology in the courtroom. Sir, having sat through several trials and observed the use of technology, do you find that the panel members like when counsel use technology to improve their performance? Additionally, do you find that it enhances counsel's advocacy techniques when they do use it? Uh, Yes and no. So 
uh, what I like to tell counsel is think outside the witness mouth when presenting your evidence. And so, so, so that, that means that, you know, usually the best way to tell a story do, isn't by someone saying every, every single word of what happened. It's uh, usually uh, a better story is one that involves some sort of visual or demonstrative. One, it makes your testimony more interesting and memorable when you do use technology in a, w in a good way. But it also becomes distracting when counsel, for instance, will just throw up slides with 100 words on, on the slide and then try to also engage with the panel members. And you can see the panel members do the same struggle. And I've actually stopped attorneys uh, when it's a judge alone trial. I'm like, look, I can either read your slide or I can listen to what you're saying. I can't do both at the same time. And so you have to incorporate your verbal arguments with your technology arguments to allow the technology, sort of, uh, so to speak, to sink in. And also to realize that you're not briefing them in a manner that they can take the slides home with them. You're using this not as a resource that they can then take back into the liberation room, but to emphasize certain points within your argument. For example, say you're a prosecutor and you had a three-hour uh, CID con uh, confession, but there's one sentence in there that the, the accused would say, like, I am glad I committed the crime. I perfectly intended to commit the crime when I did it, and I would do it again tomorrow. You know, And so that would be a nice snippet then if you had the capabilities, because you've you've taken those that information, you've taken just that portion uh, from the from that that, and you put it within your closing argument, and so you can start and maybe end with that very powerful, very highly probative uh, evidence, and it's and it helps the panel members uh, with what I call stickiness. It, it, it helps them remember, certainly helps me remember that there's a very powerful piece of, of damaging evidence for the accused in front of the panel members. That would be a, that would be, I think, a good use of a person curating the evidence that's already been pr presented and putting it in a format that could, uh, that's more digestible, so to speak, for the panel member. What unfortunately happens is that the there is no curation uh, process done. Instead, they play everything rather than playing the snippets that are best suited for their case or highlighting or giving the entire photograph rather than highlighting that particular portion of the of the photograph, which you want the panel member or you want the fact finder to pay attention to. Um, and so you can overwhelm the fact finder with just failure, failing to uh, curate, failing to edit your work, so to speak, or you could use it as a tool within your arsenal to better persuade them uh, to, you know, persuade them to get the verdict that you desire. I think it's an excellent point, mm -hmm. sir. I, I think that chiefs of justice, senior defense counsel need to, when they're developing their training plans for the quarter or for the year, work in digital evidence concepts, presentation, admitting the evidence, and as you mentioned, curating the evidence. That way you enhance your presentation of the evidence to the fact finder uh, to reach your ultimate result. 
And sir, before moving on, I just wanted to note that the name of the teams you mentioned is Bridging the Gap. And anyone that's in a litigation billet or advisory role can just go on to Teams and do a search for Bridging the Gap. You'll see the link to the group there, and it's a valuable resource. I've used it for about two and a half years now, and I recommend everybody using it. While we're on the Bridging the Gap, there's often a discussion in there about arraignments and some you know, easy, quick points that both sides could really score your, either with the judge or their client about being efficient or professional. Do you mind touching upon some of the common errors you see at <laughs> arraignments and how, we, and how we can overcome that? Sure. So the, the common errors, uh, people, I've had counsel uh, who've appeared for me in scores of cases, literally scores of cases that still can't get through a simple arraignment script. And I, I got advice maybe 15 years ago from a retiring civilian, former uh, retired senior NCO, who said they, they made it a part of their work life to make the routine routine. And so I, I think the struggle is people don't understand what the whys behind of the, the things that we do within an arraignment session. Uh, you know, there's certain things that there's a reason for everything we do, for every word, almost nearly every word that's said during an arraignment script that has uh, legal consequences for the entire process. And so maybe taking a step back, looking at the the reason for the reason why we do things uh, the way we do, and get an understanding of of the why, and that way you better understand the process. You can make yourself look better by making that routine a routine. Like if you don't know the, uh, you know, your detail and qualifications script, it just makes it so much easier uh, and comes across much more polished when you're able to roll that right off the tongue. Um, it shows confidence. It shows confidence to maybe you have some victims in the courtroom that are, that are normally even attending even the arraignment sessions, or if it's your client, uh, that you've done this before. And, and it also helps the judge. It's like, okay, I'm dealing with somebody who this is not their first rodeo. And so when you don't have that, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I, I know by heart and I can look at people, uh, in the eye, I look the accused in the eye. I, uh, you know, I've been detailing, I've detailed myself to this court marshal. I'm a, I have, uh, I'm, I have, uh, not am acted in any manner that's my tend to disqualify me as court martial. Does either party wish to question or challenge me? You know, having those kinds of uh, of of tidbits, or you know, the piece of the arraignment, accused and defense counsel, please rise. You know, Sergeant Snuffy, how do you plead before receiving your plea? I advise you that any motion to dismiss or grant other appropriate relief must be must be made at this time. Your defense counsel will speak for you. Uh, if you can just get the the short bits, uh, the ones that occur every single court martial then I think you're going to instill confidence in everybody in the courtroom to include yourself. And so make that routine routine. But I have still struggled with some counsel who don't understand what an Article 30A session is. And so we'll say something and I'll have to correct them like, yes, there was a 30 alpha uh, session in, in this case. Or, uh, you know, no, you got the wrong convening order. Uh, no, that's not a, you know, 
I need the specific general nature of the charge, not just the number of the UCMJ article, um, those kinds of things. And there's been a really good uh, posting by other judges on the arraignments. But 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 if you make it routine, if you if you get down the the same things that you're going to answer or say in every single court martial, you're going to be more confident, and that's going to instill confidence in everybody in that room. Sir, the, the next topic I wanted to really dive into is pretrial practice. And <laughs> uh, as you know, from the, the, the Bridging the Gap teams group, we could talk about pretrial practice for hours. So I want to narrow it down to two things, uh, motions practice and then pretrial conferences. And so focusing on pretrial conferences first, what what is your observation in the field about whether or not counsel are doing the pretrial conference right? Are they using it to their fullest advantage? Or are we just using it to check the box? How do you see pretrial conferences working? And how do you think it can best help the two parties resolve issues before trial? So uh, interestingly enough, I had a um, one of the captain's trial counsel who got out, who's now practicing in Arizona, commented about their pretrial conferences, which involves a judge that is not uh, a part of the case is involved and will give commentary about the case. And of course, we're prohibited from that, from doing that in the military uh, practice, uh, specifically prohibited. But uh, he he had mentioned how how helpful it is for pretrial conferences to hash out and really to uh, get to the heart of the matter. I'm not a member, you know, uh, uh, or. Uh, and privy to the conversations, but I do know when it goes well, when when you've got experienced and I would say probably sage counsel on both sides, which really help the process because they're able to focus on what the real issues are in a case um, and are able to, to uh, litigate amongst themselves and resolve things without necessarily the, the uh, judge getting involved. And so, I find them to be helpful uh, with counsel who know what to fight about and and what not to fight about. And when I think it's more of a check the box, you it's clearly evident when you know you're asking, uh, you know, you ask the counsel uh, why you know either during an 802 session or uh, on the record like. Why is this an issue? I mean, it seems like you both agree. <laughs> you both agree on this particular fact. Why couldn't this have been hashed out beforehand? You kind of get the sheepish looks uh, from the council, and that they've certainly made it personal, you know. And they, for whatever reason, can't work together on 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 a matter. Uh, we don't have the forcing function that the a lot of the civilian courts do with regards to uh, pretrial conferences. But if council, I think a wise council would would realize that you know they're limited in they may have unlimited resources of the federal government behind them but they're only they've only got so much of themselves and their own time uh, and personal uh, resources to on every single possible case and issue and if you can narrow down the issues and focus on those things that are most applicable to your th case theory, et cetera, I think you could find that pretrial conferences could be very, very valuable in resolving something. Because like it or not, the parties are gonna have to be, a, are, are gonna have to work together and are gonna be involved in the case 
on one form or the other for the rest of that, the lifespan of that case. And so, and also, you know, realize that most of the cases still do go to some form of alternative disposition, whether it's uh, chapter 10, whether it's a dismissal uh, for other reasons, or if it's a guilty plea. And so that also, in, by having a pre-trial conference and, and, and utilizing that time to work through the issues, uh, you might get a, a mutually agreeable settlement of the entire matter. And so it's certainly something that uh, behooves people to approach with a an understanding that by playing well with others, uh, you can still achieve the results, the best possible outcome for the position that you're advocating. There will be issues that you can't resolve, but most of the time the pretrial conference is a great way to just resolve discovery issues, witness issues, expert issues, other issues that you would normally file motions over that would just waste time and take up the court's time. And by resolving those issues ahead of time, it, it allows you to focus on what you really need to focus on as either a trial counsel or defense counsel, which is uh, preparing your case and ensuring your if you're a defense counsel, your client gets the best defense they can get. I think what's important to note from your point is since we don't have that judicial forcing function that we find in a lot of civilian courts, I think it's important for the chiefs of justice and the senior defense counsels out there to use uh, the pretrial conference as kind of a gauge um, of how your counsel are doing. You can use it as a uh, not just as a as a tool to see if you know good relationships exist, but also their advocacy skills, because sometimes you can resolve issues in a pretrial conference through negotiation and advocacy uh, without ever stepping into a courtroom. So I think it's an effective tool uh, for the supervisors out there to evaluate their counsel as well. Exactly. So moving on to motions practice, sir, uh, I know there's a template in the in the rules for practice before Army courts martial. Uh, what are some things you often see in the filings when we eventually do get to motions that, you know, could better our practice that are just unnecessary? Oh, well, I mean, there's been certainly been a lot written on this, and I believe uh, that uh, several members of the judiciary, uh, myself included, uh, have an article that's going to be out with the Army lawyer on this subject, so I would encourage you all to read that. Um, but there are certain things that I think are almost at this point uh, hilarious, uh, you know, with regards to some of the, uh, the the things I've seen with with the briefs, first, uh, unfortunately, I, I see a lot of canned briefs and responses, uh, which are almost m worthless. I've actually seen counsel uh, send me uh, refer to multiple cases that are on the docket in in the briefs. They would they would conflate one case with another case, um, and it would just it just comes across as just bad, um, not certainly not persuasive that you don't even know what case we're on. Um, the all the archaic language that somehow has creeped in to uh, our pleadings, like the comes now, um, I've I've essentially banned it from the briefs, trying to encourage people to stop stop that using that language or else I'll make them uh, say it during their oral argument, like, okay, you haven't said comes now. I can't listen to you unless you, it's like an all capitalization. None of that is persuasive. Um, I don't know any judges or anybody who thinks that using archaic language 
that has absolutely no purpose is any way persuasive. And so, and way too many words are you used. I know it's hard to distill down your arguments sometimes into less, but the less is more persuasive than the more, almost all the time, almost all the time. And <clears throat> uh, the facts matter a lot in for a trial judge. And so uh, a lot of what I read um, are a lot of uh, what I would call law review articles I, uh, 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 that are almost worthless unless they're advocating for a change in the law, which I got. I mean, I certainly understand uh, for those are, are kinds of uh, issues that pop up. But if it's if it's something that's fact specific for a case like a motion to suppress, I don't want to hear a Fourth Amendment uh, dissertation for five or six patient pages. I need to know what are the facts because you know your trial judges. That's where you get the most discretion. That's my abuse of discretion is my findings of facts uh, that I find. And I I I will tell you I had a, a a very heated motion to suppress case last year involving and we had some a you know several witnesses the accused. Uh, took the stand. The, uh, we had several law enforcement, and the the government brief uh, had the facts as one way. The defense brief had the facts as another way, of course. And then the uh, what actually came out at during the 39A was a completely different set of facts. And yet the counsel uh, just fell back on their briefs and never argued once why what the facts that actually came out during the hearing should and how that should be applied to the law. And so rarely do I actually ever hear counsel even saying, this is why my my fact should be believed over my opponents. Um, now, they we do it all the time in front of members and in front of judge alone cases for findings, but <laughs> it's like they turn off that that function in their head and say that we should only talk about the law rather than the actual facts uh, that make up most of the uh, the decision making process for your trial judges. So, you know, if you your your findings of fact and conclusions of law is uh, for are the motions, um, I'm not going to get any I'm not going to get any discretion for you know me saying this is what the law should be right because that's 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 going to be a uh, de novo review by higher courts as it should be they're they're the ones that know and just as good as I am uh, about what the law is but I've actually seen the witnesses I've actually uh, heard the testimony I've actually made credibility decisions and so why counsel never speak about or try to persuade me on the facts with their briefs. I, I I just don't know. I I to this day, uh, in six years, uh, rare is the advocate that will stand up and say these are the facts that matter in the case, and this is why these by whatever standard I have to use, like preponderance of the evidence, is is a, is a common one for motions. This is what uh, I should focus on with regards to my findings of fact that I'm going to make in my ruling, uh, and so I'm I'm going to do a foot stomp here. Don't forget the facts. The facts actually matter. And if you could articulate why your facts are better than your opponent's facts, 
Um, you're not, you're developing two skills. One, you're developing better motions practice skills, but then two, you're also developing skills that you'll later use during a contested trial. We've been focusing a lot on some of the improves that we could do. What would you say is one or two things that you would highlight that counsel are doing well and you would like to continue seeing them do throughout the entire trial process? I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed is when I was at Fort Riley, when you were there as a prosecutor, um, I made a comment about, uh, you know, it would really be nice if for stipulations of fact that we focused on a little bit more than just the words uh, and, you know, maybe pictures with illustrations and uh, would be helpful. Once I said that, I started getting a lot of, of stipulations of fact, for instance, with regards to uh, photographs, uh, including photographs like of crime scenes. The books that are more interesting tend to be the books that also have pictures. Uh, like, you know, you read a cr real uh, true crime story. You know, it's one thing to read the descriptions of, of the settings and the and the parties, but it's also very interesting, you know, all, all, always in the middle of the book, there used to be, you know, all these pictures of, of, of the actual people that were involved and the, uh, the places that were involved. And that makes it very interesting for the reader and certainly makes it much more interesting and helpful for everybody involved. It helps, helps the accused get through providency and it also helps the judge understand the case better because all the judges get are the referral documents. We don't get anything, but all I know is what's on the charge sheet. And so the more information, the more context you can give, the, the better. And I think we've done a really good job, job and we've come uh, a long way in the past six years with regards to our stipulations of fact. I think that kind of mentality you can pr put into all areas of your practice. Like if, 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 Everything doesn't have to be come out of a of, out of someone's mouth in order for it to be persuasive. You could incorporate pictures. You could incorporate uh, demonstrations. You could incorporate uh, uh, sound, smells. I've had smells. I've had uh, weight um, used as a demonstrative. All those are thinking outside of the witness stand with regards to putting forth and understanding a case better, using more of your sense, senses rather than just the written or spoken word. Sir, you, you kind of mentioned it at the end of your answer there about demonstrative evidence. Do you see it being used enough? As you mentioned, it's very persuasive. And so if, if there's a, any tips for counsel on using demonstrative evidence, I think that would be helpful for the field. Sure. Here is an area that's ripe for innovation and disruption is our use of demonstratives. Here's what I always thought that attorneys offices should have. They should probably have a demonstrative kit bag in their office, which would cost a lot less than a cost of one expert, uh, which would include things like uh, uh, maybe a, uh, you know, one of those fighting dummies, which, which have, uh, it's like an upper torso and head, or, you know, some tape measures, uh, the, a, 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 a life-sized, uh, body, for instance, uh, different types of, of, of real tools, real cameras, for instance, not, not, uh, not some of the cameras that, uh, photographs that I've actually seen, but, you know, think about cases, uh, a SANE kit, uh, for instance, um, all that could better tell the story that you want to tell in an understandable way. For instance, the 
I've I've seen so many people try to air strangle somebody in in the courtroom, and it's just not. It's it's and they're trying to articulate it for the record, and they're trying to articulate what's actually being done, but it's not very helpful uh, at all to tell the story. And so you have to take a step back and say, okay, what what could I do, and to tell and to make this story um, better? How can I tell this story in a better way? Sometimes it's maybe persuading uh, the judge to do a site visit. Um, I uh, tried a case. Uh, I was a, a fact finder. I uh, held court in uh, Abrams Tank once when I was in Korea because I was persuaded that I had, and that was the scene of a crime. That you can't, ex, you can't uh, understand the evidence unless you've actually sat in the literally the 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 tank commander's uh, uh, shoes in the inside the tank. Uh, and that was just a phenomenal way to tell the story uh, that that party was wanting to tell. Uh, and they were thinking outside. They were actually thinking outside the courtroom in that in that instance. Uh, we recently, a couple of weeks ago, had people think outside the courtroom and go and did a site visit at, at alleged crime scene. Once again, it ended up being very persuasive uh, for that particular party. Um, and so taking a step back and thinking, how can I involve different senses? How can I make this stickier, uh, so to speak? How can I get the most likes in the minds of the fact finder with this evidence? And some of the most memorable uh, evidence that I've ever had uh, in front of me have all been, most of them have all been demonstrative exhibits uh, that have stuck with my head, you know, even years later. The the testimony, not so much. It's just just simply is not as memorable uh, or uh, as persuasive as as tying them, tie tying those two together. And I I, I may um, one one classic example. Uh, almost thirty years ago, I watched a, a classic science fiction movie with with a. Uh, uh, a one of my first dates with now my wife. Uh, I watched Jurassic Park with her. I know 30 years later how to uh, create a dinosaur from a sample of blood given from a fossilized mosquito from uh, and mixed with frog DNA uh, because it was a gr uh, great demonstrative exhibit used by Steven Spielberg to help tell his story. Now. I still do not understand DNA as well uh, from any of the DNA experts, uh, the countless DNA experts I have heard over the years, because every single one has not used a single demonstrative, not even a picture of a double helix. Show me, don't just tell me. Uh, showing me is so, so much more stickier and much more memorable than telling me alone. No, I 100% agree with you, sir. And I think that kind of flows into the final point we wanted to talk about is, is storytelling. Uh, what is your story? And so any parting words, sir, on storytelling theme and theory that you'd like to provide to the field? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I I put out, and there's some, there's some uh, this, not that, uh, slides that I've posted on the Bridging the Gap site, but there's there's some classic 
uh, and one of the things that 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 uh, is is often forgotten is this is the sentencing case with regards to uh, telling a story. Remember that your job is not to just document dump uh, a bunch of evidence onto the judge and have them figure out what's most important. There's been times over the past several years where I've looked at a uh, a you know an often misnamed packet, the good soldier packet, for instance, uh, and I'm looking at photographs. I'm like, why out of all the photographs of this person's life, why are these important? Like, what am I looking at? Somebody I don't even know who I'm looking at uh, and why it ties into any kind of case theory. I've had government just dump entire investigations, criminal investigations, and call it uh, uh, call it aggravation. Uh, and and I've gone back and said, look, I've uh, not only are the witness statements in here uh, contradicting the step of fact, which causes problems, but also it contradicts they contradict each other. So what whose statement am I supposed to take out of the statement of fact? Um, and so realizing that you're a curator of all the evidence, you've got you've got to go through and sort what's going to best fit your case theory. And I know it when when I see it. When you don't have a case theory with regards to a a, a sentencing case, it it's very it's very apparent. And I'll 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 I'll, I'll start with the defense. Uh, the defense would will say, for instance, I've had uh, two cases over the past couple of years. Say the ki the soldier once he's gets out of confinement, he's going to be a truck driver, right? Uh, this is a classic extenuation mitigation case. He's setting himself to be a productive member of society in a field that's, you know, we, we need a lot of truck drivers in the country, right? And so I will have an unsworn statement uh, where, the, where the soldier will say, I want to be a truck driver, and that will be it. Uh, and, and then you're just left, okay, well, you've just told me you want to be a, a truck driver. You know, two weeks later, I have this a similar soldier that will also say, I want to be a truck driver when I get out, but then we'll, we'll in his evidence packet, we'll include his a photocopy of his CDL driver's license. We'll show a, a, com a completion certificate from, from a local truck driving school. We'll show how his MOS, his current MOS of trans in transportation ties well with an MOS uh, uh, crosswalk into that, that kind of field. Showed that he graduated the top of his class in AIT involving truck driving. Uh, will show uh, that he give me a job offer from his from a future employer, uh, showing me that he's gonna you know get out and become how he's gonna be, become a truck driver. So even though the the defense attorney and the accused, even if the accused never said a word, and the defense attorney never mentioned it. What have they told me with the evidence? They've told me this soldier is going to become a truck driver when he gets out of confinement. And how much more persuasive is that? Uh, but instead, I, you get the same cliched uh, you know, statement from mom that she loves the accused, uh, statement that uh, there's a, you know, that he's going to be able to bounce back after he gets out of confinement but not ever showing me he's going to bounce back. Never, never, rather just, it's always tell, 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 and not enough showing. One that stands out 
was a case I think I don't know if you were involved in, but the the it was clear that the defense attorney's theme was, you know, he wants to stand as general deterrence for other DUIs. And so he ended up uh, taking a picture of his crushed truck, blowing it up, as well as like a statement of of him accepting responsibility, and then testimony by the company commander about what how he posted these pictures on his own in the company day room or something like that for every other soldier to see. And that defense attorney flipped the script and was able to say, look, he is standing before you today as general deterrence uh, for other people. And so instead of, you know, sending a message, uh, you know, the government wants to uh, say that you, he can be sent a message by, by giving him a harsh confinement. Look at all the steps the very powerful steps he's already taken to send a, me a message. And, and it certainly was very, uh, very powerful and very unique way of telling and forwarding that kind of case theory. So bottom line is have a case theory, have a case theme, you know, what happened and then what is your theme going to be? And then look about, ask yourself, how can I show the fact finder that, uh, this theory, rather than just me telling them this case theory, and I think you'll be fine that you'll you'll find a lot more success. Sir, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of Military Justice Grab Bag for the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. It was an honor having you, and I appreciate your advice and comments to the field. Uh, any last parting words you'd like to say before we end the show? I think you captured it. it uh, I'm, uh, I, as I said, that there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of room for innovation within our practice. Uh, but you don't have to come up with creative ideas on your own. Uh, look at what our our civilian counterparts are doing in the case, and look at and and certainly utilize the team site. Uh, if you're not already part of a defense or a prosecution team site where you can share ideas and best practices. Uh, I was using Microsoft, I was using uh, MillSuite 10 years ago to share ideas across the defense bar that we had in Korea. Uh, and that's, you know, don't keep all these good ideas to yourself, continually improve the practice. And then no matter what you do, make it better, uh, pay it forward and encourage innovation wherever you can find it. And I think uh, you'll make not only your, you'll find better success that way, but you'll also make our entire enterprise practice a lot better. So best of luck. Thanks so much, sir. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General School.